Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Dr. Tony Mays in this episode. Tony has a deep history in distance education across Africa and is currently Open Schooling Specialist with the Commonwealth of Learning. Tony has supported many thousands of educators in adopting online education methods and he's an advocate for sustainable and scalable education. It's my pleasure to be talking with Dr. Tony Mays, who is an Open Schooling Specialist with the Commonwealth of Learning. Tony has a history of strategic leadership and operational management in distance education, and he's also the Managing Associate Editor of the Journal of Learning for Development. Tony, it's great to be talking with you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. Not a problem. Can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? Well, after I completed my undergraduate and teacher education studies in the UK, at the age of 22, I went to Malawi under the auspices of voluntary service overseas to teach in a secondary school. Yeah. In addition to teaching in the day school, I became a tutor and then principal of an evening school, which supported um, learners registered with the Malawi College of Distance Education. So right from the beginning of my teaching career, I was involved in distance education. After three years in Malawi, I decided to visit South Africa before returning to the UK, uh, but I ended up staying for 30 years. I first worked for an NPO, a non-profit organization called Promat Colleges. That organization offered a one-year matriculation program for teachers and nurses who were precluded from further education and training due to their lack of a matriculation certificate. Since demand for places exceeded what could be offered, I was asked to set up a correspondence college version and then subsequently became responsible for all materials development um, when ProMats activities extended to teacher education as well. Mm. I was there for about 12 years. Then after ProMat, I moved to another non-profit organization. Uh, it was then called the South African Institute for Distance Education, but today they like to be just called SADI. Sadie's always promoted and supported open and distance learning and was an early adopter also of open educational resources. Mm-hmm. Initially, my work with Sadie was dominated by support for UNISA's National Professional Diploma in Education program, which was a, a kind of a bridging course for teachers. Uh, but as the years passed, I began to work with a number of institutions, both within South Africa and more widely in sub-Saharan Africa, Um, in relation to various aspects of distance education in general and distance education for teacher education in particular. Jenny Glenny, the director of SADI, and Professor Louis van Niekerk, formerly from UNISA, were my kind of two mentor, key mentors in that period. And then towards the end of my time with SADI, I moved for a short period to the University of Pretoria to manage the unit for distance education um, within the Faculty of Education. And there I I kind of helped to oversee the transformation of the model from a print-based and contact-supported approach to more of a blended learning approach. And then three years ago, I moved to Cole to take up the open schooling portfolio here. 
So I've kind of closed the loop in some ways um, from how I started with the Malawi College of Distance Education at the beginning of my career to, to now heading the open schooling portfolio here. Mm. Um, and I think that what has happened in that period is I've shifted from print-based distance model through to um, almost exclusively online during the pandemic yeah. because we weren't even able to visit any of our projects. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so logically, uh, my publications have followed that kind of trajectory. Mm. Um, initially, I, I was publishing lots of distance education study materials. I think I've contributed about 250 modules. Um, but as I was asked to assist, I began to, to publish about the process of curriculum design and materials development for distance education, yeah. and then into other parts of aspects of distance education, such as costing, uh, quality assurance, and then more recently, open educational resources. And of course, now that I'm here, I'm publishing around open schooling more formally. Mm. So, Tony, that's, that's a, a very um, lengthy career, and, and you would have seen uh, distance go from classic correspondence print-based through to online materials, as you mentioned. Looking back across your career and the start of your uh, work in distance education with the correspondence materials, how would they differ from what you're now doing online? What, what are some of the design differences and the uh, differences a learner might experience going from the print to the online now? Um, I think it's worth noting at the outset that in many of the countries I work in, I still have older forms of distance provision running alongside online provision. Mm. So you might have online provision more in the sort of like cities and connected areas, but you have to use sometimes older technologies for the more rural areas. Yeah, I think obviously what is different is that we can now do almost everything on the cell phone as long as you're connected you can access more resources than you ever had access to in a normal day school in the past uh, certainly more resources than i had access to when i learned in malawi the day before term started that in addition to teaching english which is what i went for i was also going to be teaching physical science and mathematics uh, for, for which I had no resources at all yeah. <laughs> with me. <laughs> and I had to remind myself of the curriculum. So I think obviously uh, the openness, the permeable nature of the, the curriculum and of the physical school enabled by mobile technology is a significant game changer. But some things stay the same. I mean, if you want distance and online learning to work, you do need a starting point of providing access, some structured access to curriculum-based um, learning resources that were designed for more independent learning and engagement. Mm -hmm. You do need to create spaces for engagement interaction and interaction between peers, between peers and the teacher, and between peers and their institution, whether you're doing that in face-to-face um, -face contact sessions or whether you're doing it fully online. And you do need to think about how are you going to assess learners and provide formative feedback without necessarily requiring teachers and learners to be in the same place at the same time. And I think one of the notions that I really like was coined by Google, um, and that's the, the notion of a kind of semi-synchronous approach. Mm -hmm. So you have, you have a bit of scaffolding. There are certain kind of deadlines you need to meet for your assignments and so on. Um, but how you do it and when you do it, whether you want to do it at three o'clock in the morning or on a Sunday or whatever, 
yeah. you have so much more flexibility than we had in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think what has also been the case is as as we have moved in this kind of direction, we've seen the need for ongoing training and support for staff, not only the teachers but also the administrators, as as they begin to think about models of provision that are not premised on bricks and mortar and also not mm-hmm. premised on sort of like fixed timetable things that you can only do maths at 8.30 in the morning, for example. And then as you begin to do things differently, you then have to kind of revisit your policy, your QA processes, your monitoring and evaluation. And then you have to think, how am I going to sustain all this? So then you have to start looking at your costing and financing models as well. Mm-hmm. So, so some things change drastically, but some things stay very similar. They do. And it's interesting to think that those things that have stayed similar have been um, in the distance educator's mind for quite some time. Uh, I think yeah. some people discover online education and think it's something brand new. But in actual fact, there's a very, very rich practice of history and theory that comes from distance education circles. Absolutely. So, Tony, can you tell us about the ideas and themes your work has provided across the, the span of your research that you sense are still pertinent today? I kind of have an acquisitive kind of mindset, you know, like um, the different learning theories, uh, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, as, a, as an initial beginner teacher, you tend to, you tend to kind of see yourself as the, the purveyor of wisdom and content. So you tend to adopt more kind of behaviorist approaches. And as you become a bit more confident and a bit more understanding, you start to experiment with more cognitive and constructivist approaches. Mm. And then as you get access to all the technology, um, you begin to think, oh, there's something to be said for this more connectivist kind of approach as well. So I have I have all mm. these different things. I, I keep learning things and then adding to them. So I don't tend to throw things away. <laughs> I sort of build upon what has gone before. And then in terms of distance theory, I still find that, the, the notion of transactional distance really useful. Sort of going back to the notion that even if you're face-to-face or you're online, there's always going to be, there's something in your head as a teacher. There is something in the heads of your, your learners. Um, and there was probably something in the head of the curriculum team that put the curriculum together, although sometimes I have some doubts about that. <laughs> so, so I think that... We, we, we can build um, upon these kind of evolving theories. And I see that from the notion of transactional distance, the, the community of inquiry model has been kind of like dominant for the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, and then I also like notions like um, Lani Gunawadina's uh, wisdom communities, um, putting kind of the cultural indigenous element back into the curriculum as well. So mm. I, I kind of am, as I say, acquisitive in these kinds of approaches. Um, but I think as you as you begin to, to move into the online space, one of the things that you notice quite quickly is just how much information you suddenly have about your learners. Um, I remember as a, as, a, as a high school teacher with 30, 40 uh, young people in the classroom, you probably talk to, in any one lesson, five or six of them individually. Much of the time you were giving them activities to do, um, but they were working largely independently and not engaging with you. 
And then a few years ago, I had about 200 young people doing some Khan Academy maths with me. And they'd set me as their tutor so I could go in at the end of the day and had all this enormous amounts of information about each of those learners, um, more than I'd, I'd ever had such information before. But it was possible to say, you know, there are like these, most people are doing okay, but there are these 10 learners who are struggling in these areas at the moment. That's, that's an amazing, that's amazing to have access to such information and to be able to individualize that learning journey. So for those 10 learners each day, I could say, well, maybe try this tomorrow, maybe try that. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that does raise all sorts of issues about uh, the ethics of using the data. Um, and who gets to know what about each of those learners. Mm. Um, but but also it's kind of made me open to the notions of gaming and digital badging and micro-credentials. Although, again, although the technology allows such things to happen, and I can see how motivating they can be, ministries and accreditation bodies tend to be a bit more conservative in their thinking. Um, so whether we can or how quickly we can kind of move those kinds of approaches into formal teaching and learning uh, is probably going to be a bit more of a slower process. Mm. So thinking back over your publications, are there any one or two that really stand out as uh, ones you'd, I, I guess, be most proud of? <laughs> well, I like the ones that get cited. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the... I would say that my words have not particularly forked any lightning, but um, I think the costing study I did fairly early in my career was a seminal kind of one for me. And I've remained really interested in the sustainability of distance provision since then. Um, So it's, it's a recurring theme in my engagements with new partners and new institutions. Mm -hmm. And then, um, we had a really nice set of discussions at Sadie about 10 years ago or so. We were looking at, up to that point in South Africa, there had been a dichotomy. There was contact provision and there was distance provision and there the twain shall meet. Mm. Um, And then we began to shift into more of a sense of a continuum of practices um, and more contact institutions were introducing um, distance elements. Yeah. And the two, the two big providers of distance education were beginning to see the importance of, of engagement and interaction. Um, and so at SADI, we evolved this um, grid um, with, with two axes to, to kind of map the range of provisions. And that's also, I think, proved to be a very useful model. So Jenny and I wrote it up um, for an article um, for an online journal. So those two are probably the the most significant ones, um, but of course it does take a few years for your for your for your publications to to get known and to have an impact. So I'm very much hoping that the the new open schooling book we published at the end of 2020 will get some traction as well. Mm, um, excellent, because we were yeah we were right at the end of a six year cycle um, at cold so it was it was an opportune time to try and draw the lessons that we had learned um, together in one place hmm, brilliant and that's published by the commonwealth of learning that's correct yeah so it sounds as though um, your work is 
what was aligned initially with the work of Greville Rumble, who did a lot of work on um, costing and distance education. Do you think there's room for that sort of uh, work today? Absolutely. I've just we've just completed a study um, which we'll be formally launching on the 24th of November, mm. um, where we looked at a social return on investment issue because you know it takes it takes a while to 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 build a new model of schooling provision um, and especially when you're working with ministries you want to work with ministries because you have the potential eventually to get to scale yeah um, but also as I say ministry is fairly conservative it takes a lot of discussion and sometimes quite slow decision making processes to be able to to put something together mm. um, and so so the, the most recent costing study was looking at what are the additional benefits you get um, by training teachers, for example, in developing OERs, by um, having teachers pilot using different kinds of technologies? There are, there are knock-on effects um, more widely into the education system, apart from the open schooling um, learners that you reach themselves. Mm, yeah. so, so that was that, was that study. Um, as I say, we're going to launch it formally on the 24th of November. Excellent. Look forward to that. And that'll actually be after we record this episode, so we can certainly link to that in the uh, show notes. Okay, that'll be good. So, Tony, we're now towards the end of 2021, um, and drawing on your great history of distance education and how it's morphed into online learning, and of course you would have experienced a lot of emergency remote teaching as well, I'm really interested in your observations about online learning and education at the present time. Um, really, very, very keen to hear your answer to this one. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so I think one has to to realise that the, when schools close suddenly and institutions close suddenly, there were some institutions who were able to switch quite quickly, um, and some countries and others that were not. So we we had to put together quite quickly some some guidelines to update our guidelines on distance provision. To, to make clear the distinction between the kind of emergency response of remote teaching and the more considered longer-term possibilities of blended learning and online learning. So we were quite busy um, in 2020 getting our heads around that. Mm-hmm. And then we got a couple of requests from um, ministries, uh, first in the Ministry of Education in Fiji, and then the Ministry of Education in Trinidad and Tobago to help their teachers make the transition. So I ha- we had about one week for, <laughs> for Fiji to put to, <laughs> to put together to put together a short course, um, which we used a, a massive open online courses platform, and we helped about a thousand teachers think about some of the issues involved in moving into remote teaching as a kind of a first step to considering maybe more formal blended and um, online learning for the future. Mm. And then when Trinidad and Tobago, as we were offering that first iteration, Trinidad and Tobago asked us to offer it for them as well. And then they liked it so much that they asked us to offer it again. Mm. And in the end, we reached about 11,500 teachers um, through that. And it has given birth now to a series of courses um, that we're working on with the OER Foundation to to help teachers to make that transition. 
So I think it's been quite a steep learning curve for <laughs> for, for all of us, uh, for teachers, for coal, for ministries. Um, and we were suddenly, coal became even more popular than we were before in this in that period as, as ministries and schools and teachers and institutions were asking us, well, what models do you know of? Um, and I think one of the, the great things that coal can do is we have this convening um, power to, to bring together experienced practitioners and not so experienced practitioners. And, and I regularly have engagements, for example, with some of the, the big existing um, open schools where I try to put newcomers into the field in contact with these more experienced ones. So like the National Institute of Open Schooling in India, yeah. um, the Namibian College of Open Learning, uh, Botswana, and Bangladesh, open universities both have open schools. So there is, a, there is this body of practice that we can build upon. But of course, one of the one of the challenges that we have constantly is this access to connectivity and devices for learners and teachers. Mm. So, as I said previously, we I might in one country have some learners doing pretty much everything online, um, but then having to make provision for those who do not have such access. Yeah. So, for example, using um, you, know, you can distribute digital resources using flash drives or Cole's Aptus device or a Rachel device or something like that. Yeah. And what we're also seeing in sub-Saharan Africa in particular is that teachers um, and learners have kind of bypassed the desktop computer thing. And, and uh, there's waning interest in computer labs and such like um, because they've come straight to mobile. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think there's, there's, there's a huge potential for, for increased use of mobile learning um, in, in our lifelong learning for farmers portfolio here, for example. We've made very extensive use of, of Moby MOOCs. <laughs> As we call them, and and podcasting for farmers, you can you can reach very rural communities um, if you if you keep your your kind of content uh, not data intensive, so voice only, mm. short. You can you can reach more and more people. So I do think that's where we're going. I think we will see much more use of of mobile learning, and I also think that one of the key lessons from the pandemic is that we've realized, well, in Col we knew it, but many of the teachers that we have worked with have realized that you don't necessarily have to be in the same place as your learners to, to help them to learn. If you think that most teachers in the system learned themselves um, in physical classrooms, then they went to a teacher's training college and got lectures in a, a physical classroom. And then they went to a school and they've been teaching for 20, 30 years in, the, in a physical classroom. You, you can begin to be conditioned to think that the only way learning can happen is if the teachers and learners are in the same space at the same time um, and bounded by the physical walls of the classroom. Yeah. And I think what, what we have learned from remote teaching, um, didn't work for everybody, obviously, um, is that as we go forward, especially for older learners, especially for kind of like senior secondary level, a more flexible approach where some of the learning can happen independently at home when learners want to learn it. 
and then and then maybe sort of more like flipped classroom approaches uh, mm-hmm. where the learners come in and are more actively engaged in interrogating and problem solving and maybe not necessarily coming to the school campus so often um, I think that would be a more appealing to the senior secondary learners but also could help to solve another problem because then you could platoon um, as happens extensively in Mozambique mm. where if you're not expecting all of your senior secondary learners to be in school on campus seven hours a day you could have a morning cohort and an afternoon cohort and for the same physical infrastructure support twice mm. as many learners mm. So I think those kinds of things uh, are lessons from from the pandemic um, that I'm hoping will survive as schools reopen. Yeah. So j- just to uh, be clear on one element of that, so the online teaching that you're offering, or online training you're offering, was it to bring didacticism online or was it to challenge didacticism and try and uh, supplement it with more flipped or blended learning approaches? So in the short term, it was, you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher in, in Fiji, I've been teaching in a classroom all my life. Um, now I'm told I can't see my learners. What am I going to do? Yeah. So what, what kind of as an emergency response, um, what, what are some of the practical things you can do in the short term to try and ensure continuity of learning? But of course, um, in, in the ways one does it, in the examples one shares with the teachers, you're helping them to imagine the possibilities um, for mm. more extended use of open distance, flexible and online learning approaches. Yeah. And I think that it's not, not saying that we, we, we can do without schools. Um, I mean, especially for very young learners and for uh, learners with special educational needs and uh, people from poor families, there's all the kind of social interaction, mm. the support services, the meals, school meals are really important for, for, for some poorer communities. Mm. But I think what we have tried to do is to create an imagination to say, um, we can't have physical schools that are accessible for everybody. Mm. And even before the pandemic, we had something like 300 million learners of school going age who should have been in school who weren't. And so reaching those, we needed to find much more flexible ways of doing it. Um, And digital technology seems to me to be the way to go if ministries can work with their ISP providers so that we can get free or very low cost data for educational services. Mm -hmm. And devices now, I mean, the... One of my projects in Kenya makes use of little tablet devices that cost much less than the pile of printed textbooks that <laughs> we would we would have previously supplied. So, I mean, yeah. the, the, the possibility that you could put an entire curriculum of digital resources on a little tablet for less than 60 US dollars, for example. Mm. And so you've got every learner has a complete curriculum of resources. There, there are all these exciting possibilities. Mm, absolutely. Tony, um, I'm going to put you into an unfair hypothetical situation at the moment. Uh, imagine you had a limitless budget, but you had to spend it on research. What would you invest in? What research would you most like to see? Hmm. I'm, t- I'm torn here <laughs> because <laughs> one part of me would want to, to look at school curricula um, and say, actually, what we've been doing is we keep adding things to the school curriculum. We don't really mm-hmm. take much away. 
um, and to reinvestigate the nature of a core curriculum for schooling. And maybe one that we could share across international boundaries. Yeah. Um, because we all teach fractions, we all teach addition and subtraction and things like that, but we keep reinventing the wheel. <laughs> so one part of me would want to do more research into common curricula, developing open educational resources that can then be easily recontextualized for practice. But But that's one part. Another part of me would want to do um, so a lot more work around um, artificial intelligence for education. Mm. One of the things that excited me about working with the Khan Academy, for example, was the immediate feedback to learners. Now, they didn't have to wait for me to give them feedback. They do a couple of quizzes that they get stuck. They can, they've got these layers of support that they could access. And, and the algorithm was saying, okay, you seem to have mastered this. Let's take you to a, a, a more a more sophisticated, a more nuanced kind of level of learning in this pathway. Yeah. For a single teacher to do that with 30 or 40 learners um, is very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think I think there's there's a huge amount of research we could be doing into the application of um, artificial intelligence for education. Mm. But then my other leg, <laughs> this is the third area, is is I'm constantly fascinated by the possibilities of finding technology solutions for developing contexts mm. because it's going to be a long time before all of the learners who need it have access to devices and technology so what are what are the, some of the, the the quick wins we can get um, what are some of the technologies we can deploy rapidly to to provide the kind of access people will need and I think that's one of the things that also came out of the pandemic, that in societies that had existing distance learning provision, had very good internet connectivity, you could reach more of your learners. But where there's a huge digital divide, you've got those who could access and continue learning, and then a large number who couldn't. Yes. Uh, my, my worry is that some of those won't come back to us as schools reopen. More and more of the countries that have reopened are reporting to us that not all of the learners are coming back. And I'm very afraid that unless we offer them more flexible technology-based solutions, we will lose them. Mm. Yeah, sounds like some very interesting and, and pertinent research there that uh, it'd be very interesting to explore those areas. Yeah. And you see, I think they overlap, you see. I think they reinforce one another, those three areas. Mm. Yeah, I think it was certainly the case in New Zealand that uh, a digital divide was exposed during COVID to responses to uh, EIT as well. So, yeah, yes. certainly it is a worldwide okay. phenomenon. Mm. Tony, can we finish with two people you'd recommend as legends or leaders of online learning? Uh, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you now and one who you think otherwise might have an important perspective to share. And I know you can't mention everybody you need to. That That is really difficult. You see, I would say the person who's had the longest um, legacy for me on my own practice is Jenny Glenny at Sadie. Mm. Um, the CEO of Sadie. But I'm constantly learning uh, from a uh, counterparts here at Cole because we all come from very interesting backgrounds. So um, we're always learning from one another. So if you do cycle back to Cole at some point, please chat to Francis <laughs> Ferreira and Sanjaya nice. Mishra. Yeah. Um, but in terms of looking outside of Cole, I think it would be interesting to have a chat with um, Prof. Abdullah Uba Adamu 
in Nigeria. In February this year, he, he came to the end of his term as vice chancellor of the Nigerian um, Open University. And he's, I mean, the thing that fascinates me about Noun is the scale at which it works. I went to Lagos to set up a conference there and we got stuck in traffic because the whole city had closed down because they were having a graduation ceremony in the soccer stadium. <laughs> and they were graduating something like 19,000 learners all in one go. I mean, that's, <laughs> it was just just amazing. But, but what is also interesting about him is that he has been, throughout his career, promoting indigenous languages, um, indigenous arts and music. So how do you find mm-hmm. this this balance between um, massive provision of higher education opportunities without losing sight of the uniqueness of your culture, of your languages, um, and of, of the social history of your country. So I'm, I think he would be really interesting mm, to have mm. a talk to. Excellent. Tony, th- thank you so much for giving us some insight into your work. Um, really fascinating, and uh, it must be hugely rewarding too to see the results of, of your labours. Thank you so much for being a leader of online learning. Thank you for the invitation. Have a good day. You can know more about Tony and his work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com. 